about sacrifice and about how sin required the death penalty and that blood was the necessary covering for sin. And then when the fullness of time came, you sent forth your son to be born of a woman, to be born and suffer the penalty of sin, not for what he did, Father, but for what we did. And Father, on this night, on this Monday, Thursday, we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came, that he was betrayed, that he laid down his life, not only for his disciples, but for us generations later who would also be his disciples and for the sins of the entire world from the dawning of creation until the end of the world. And Father, we pray as we celebrate, as we worship, as we proclaim these things once again, Father, that you would touch our hearts anew with the old, old story of the Savior who came from glory to walk among us and to redeem us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight is a special opportunity to celebrate our Lord and His sacrificial gifts uh, to us and for us on this holy week leading up to Resurrection Sunday this weekend. Uh, tonight, as has been our tradition here at Chillicothe Bible Church, I'd like to spend a few minutes reading through uh, verses 1 through 35 of the Gospel of John. Uh, chapter 13, and then meditating on what Jesus shows us and tells us. We're going to be like little kids tonight. We're going to have show and tell. And we're going to look at what Jesus shows us and tells us uh, here in His Word about how to apply it. And so if you're able, if you would please stand and follow along as I read God's Word to us. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my, my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need a feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's bow again in prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to see and to understand and to hear in our hearts and to practice with our lips and lives that which we see and hear tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, now within this text, there are probably several weeks worth of sermons to be delivered and a lot of truths to our to apply to our lives. And so I'm under no illusion that, that I'm going to give you the exhaustive version of everything that can be said and learned in this text. But I do want to draw our attention to seven magnificent truths that Jesus shows us here in these verses. And I'd like you to, if you have your Bible, to look closely at it with me because we don't want to miss any of these. These are all, I think, pretty amazing in what Jesus says and does here. And I want to meditate with you on these things. The first magnificent truth I want to show you is Jesus' limitless love. And you see it in verses 1 and 2. And actually throughout this whole section of scripture you see Jesus limitless love on display and this whole chapter reveals something of it but you see it clearly expressed in verses 1 and 2 
in how He treats His disciples and what He is preparing to go and to do beginning that very night. These first two verses underline it for us. They tell us that Jesus, knowing what was about to happen, that He was about to fulfill His mission, that He was about to be betrayed into the hands of the ungodly, that He was about to lay down His life for sin, that He was about to be beaten and and mocked and persecuted and tried and killed, knowing all of that was going to happen, He showed His disciples full extent of his love. And he did so at the very moment that Satan had already, the text says, put it into Judas' heart to betray him. Now reflect on that for just a second with me. Why did Jesus wait until after Judas had already gotten the idea and decided to betray him? What kind of person demonstrates the full extent of his love for a friend whom he knows is already committed to the process of betraying? Can I submit to you that it is precisely this kind of man? That it is this kind of Savior? It is the incarnate Son of God who shows limitless love even to those who are betraying Him. Even after they've decided to betray Him to His death, Jesus will show love to that kind of person. What kind of Savior is that? It's this kind. It's an amazing, limitless love that Jesus displays. And verse 3 builds on that reality with Jesus Impressive identity. Do you see it? Jesus knew that the Father had given Him all things. What does that mean? It means all things in the entire universe belong to Him. All things, all people, all of creation is His possession. All of creation. And Jesus knew that He had come from the Father and that He was returning to the Father. In other words, Jesus knew exactly who He was. His divine sonship was not a surprise to Him. It was not something fake that His disciples invented later, as some critical scholars will tell you today. When you, you know, I don't know if Time and Newsweek are still published or not, but they used to come out with the semi-annual heresy edition right around Easter and Christmas. And they would, um, and they would tell you in that they'd have some guy with PhD after his name who would tell you that that Jesus' divine sonship was not a not a real thing. It was more of a metaphorical idea that his disciples kind of invented later, and you really didn't need to trust in that. You say Time and Newsweek. I don't know if they're still around, but Jesus is still around. And Jesus knew who He was from the moment of His birth. He was aware of His divine Sonship. It wasn't a surprise to Him. It wasn't something that snuck up on Him. He knew that He was what the Scripture says of Him and what the ancient creeds tell us 
that He is the only begotten Son, begotten of the Father before all, uh, before all worlds, before all ages. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Amen? He understood who He was. And yet, given this impressive identity, you see the next remarkable thing about Him. It does not produce in Him this sort of, do you know who I am? kind of attitude that you see sometimes. You seen that? See some senator being made fun of and they puff up and are like, do you know who I am? Or some, or some celebrity being arrested and they want different kind of treatment because... Well, gosh, I was in a movie once. Isn't that ridiculous? And here, here stands before His disciples the incarnation of the Son of God. The One to whom all things belong. The One who brought all things into existence by His Word. The One by whose power all things continue and have their subsistence. Uh, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily, he has humility. In fact, if you'll forgive me the, 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 the phrasing in verses 4 through 7, what we see is Jesus' humongous humility. Maybe you think that's two words that don't really go together, you know, humongous and humility, bigness and smallness together. It's a bit like jumbo shrimp, right? or enough cookies, or something like that, right? Uh, there's two words that don't really go together. You know, too much ice cream. Um, uh, you know, in Jesus' case, though, it's entirely appropriate to throw these two words together. Because what do we see the incarnation of the Son of God doing? He doesn't, on His last night on earth, His last time with the disciples, uh, pull back the curtain and say, let me show you how magnificent I truly am. What He does is demonstrate His love for them. How does He do it? He gets up from supper and He takes a towel and He strips off His outer garment and He fills a bowl with water and He begins to wash His disciples' And the most powerful being in all the universe stoops to do the lowliest job of the lowliest slave. The same hands that formed creation, the same hands that heal the sick, the same fingers which engraved this, the law on tablets of stone and gave them to Moses now wash mud and manure off the, off the disciples' feet. Imagine. Do you see limitless love? Yes. Hang on, there's more. Verses 8 to 11, we see Jesus offers complete cleansing. Simon Peter has all kinds of confused questioning as Jesus begins to do this. He says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, Well, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And he's like, Well, then, all right. 
if, if, if you're doing the washing, then I want to be completely clean. Wash the whole part of me. He's like, well, Peter, I've already washed all of you. Now you just need to have the dirty part washed. And through his confusion and his questioning, we come to understand that Jesus is teaching spiritual truth through a bit of show and tell. And, and what he's giving them is a living metaphor to help them understand that the forgiveness that he offers at the moment of salvation gives them complete cleansing, gives them an entire bath. And then there is a need, though, for ongoing cleansing through confession as you daily walk with Jesus. Because as you daily walk with Jesus, part of you gets dirty and still needs to be cleaned. And so you come to Jesus to receive your cleansing from that which has gotten dirty. And so after we've once had a complete bath by God's forgiving grace, by putting our trust in Jesus, then after that we need only wash the dirty portions of ourselves through confession of our sins to Jesus to receive ongoing cleansing from sin. And Jesus' limitless love makes it available to every single person who puts his or her personal trust in him. Complete cleansing. And it is complete and it's available free to everyone who desires it, canceling out every kind of sin for everyone who believes. And Jesus' limitless love is also revealed in his extraordinary example in verses 12 through 17. You see that? Look at these verses with me. It's an extraordinary thing. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is saying, look, my actions tonight are an example for you to follow. That you must do what I have done because he is the master and we are the servants. And we are the messengers of his love to other people. And as the messengers of his love and grace, so we go just as he did with love and grace and serve other sinners with the message of cleansing and forgiveness that is available through Jesus Christ. And we help each other come clean before the Lord. Remember? Some of you ladies I know are studying James and probably just got through James chapter 5. And in that, in that chapter, that wonderful chapter is verse 516 where it says, Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And if you understand it rightly, it isn't that forgiveness comes from confessing your sin to another person. 
It's that as you confess with another person, together you go before the Lord and you provide each other with accountability and encouragement and fellowship, and you grow together as you reveal what is dirty and needs to be cleansed and dealt with. Amen? That there's not just... That, that in other words, our, our walk with Jesus is not just me and Jesus, it's also we and Jesus. And we and Jesus go together and we grow together and walk together. And Jesus says, the kind of thing I've done with you and for you, you need to do with one another. Not that we literally need to wash each other's feet, but that we need to bring each other to Jesus for cleansing. Amen? Now, uh, to me, verses 18 to 30 are fascinating because of what Jesus does next. In them, we see an incredible invitation. It's absolutely incredible to me. Have you ever wondered why Jesus continues to mention to all of the disciples that one of them is a traitor? He just keeps hammering on that. One of you is a traitor. One of you is a traitor. One of you is not clean. One of you is a traitor. He says, the scripture will be fulfilled. He has eaten my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Is it just that he's hoping to provoke questions from the disciples about who it is? Like, I wish one somebody would ask me, because then I'll tell them who it is. Is it simply that Jesus is anguished in his spirit? And now that the moment of his betrayal has arrived, it really hurts? And he is sharing how much it hurts? Well, certainly we see that in the text. But I think there's also in this another revelation of Jesus' limitless love. Because I think that what Jesus is talking about in verses 19 and 20 where he talks about believing in him and receiving him and through these things receiving a relationship with the Father as well. Who do you think that invitation is for? He knows that 11 of the disciples believe already. Who's that invitation for? It's for Judas. It's for the one who is unclean. It's for the one that he knows is the traitor. It's one last opportunity. One final call to Judas to repent and to believe and to not go down this road. He knows that Judas is not going to take it, but nevertheless, isn't it amazing that his grace offers it anyway? An incredible invitation. And it's only when that invitation has failed that Jesus encourages Judas to get on with it already. And it's only after the invitation has been given that Satan is allowed to enter in. And I think I, I think that text is given to us not only to reveal 
God's love for all of us, but also because the invitation still stands to all of us today. I know that I know where most of the people in this room are in terms of their relationship with Jesus. I know that most of us have a have a living, breathing relationship with Christ and that and that the Spirit has entered into our lives and that we have been transformed through faith in Christ. But let me tell you, if that hasn't happened to you yet, guess who this invitation is for? It's for you. It's here for you. And if Jesus is extending salvation even to Judas, hear me when I say this, if Jesus is extending salvation and forgiveness even to Judas, there is nothing that you have done that Jesus cannot forgive and extend salvation to you for. Amen? If even the traitor who is about to be possessed by the devil can be forgiven, and whatever is in your past is also forgivable too. Amen? God has made a way. And if Easter is about anything, it's about that. About God making a way for those who hated Him, uh, who, who rebelled against Him most strongly, who wanted nothing to do with Him. To be saved from death and cleansed from sin and received into His family as full sons and having the same inheritance as Jesus himself. Through death and resurrection comes life and salvation. What Easter is all about. That through death and suffering comes resurrection life. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's still all freely available to everyone who believes and who enters into relationship with God through trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, one last thing I want to show you in these verses in this, in this chapter, and that is Jesus' magnificent mandate. In verses 34 and 35. It's these verses, by the way, that give this night its name. We call it Maundy Thursday. Because if you read the Bible in Latin, when it says commandment, it uses this word, mandatum, which means men. And so when Jesus says a new commandment, a new mandatum that I give to you, this is what this is about. This is why this night is celebrated, a new commandment that I give to you. And as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us, we're meant to remember also what Jesus is calling us to do. It says here in the text, just as, you ought to underline that in your Bible if you haven't, just as I have loved you, so also you must love one another. So, what does that mean? Let me ask you, what does this passage show us about how Jesus loves us? Because what Jesus is telling them 
is just like I've showed love to you, you show love to everyone else. That is one of my disciples. It means that we show love to the end of our lives and to its fullest extent, just like Jesus did. It means that we lay down our lives if necessary, even for our enemies. Have you all noticed that things are a little bit divided in our country? Just a just air? And things are actually kind of toxic um, between the various political sides that we have. There are more than two. There's a whole multiplicity of them, right? And everybody, and everybody regards anybody who doesn't agree with them on a whole host of issues from vaccines to uh, abortion to... Uh, tax rates to whatever as not just their opponent or someone with different policy ideas, but as their enemy, right? What does Jesus show us? That you lay down your life, not for your friend, for your enemy, for those who hate you, for those who betray you, for those who hurt you, for those who were closest to you and stabbed you worst, you lay down your lives for them. Now I got to be honest. I got to grow into that whole concept. Okay, I mean, really, I am not that spiritually mature yet, and I don't know if I ever will be. But that's the call. Lay down your life for your enemy. For those who hate you. It means that no matter what your identity is, that you lay it aside to serve with the greatest possible humility. That none of us, whoever we are, is too important to serve in the most meaningful of capacity, whatever that is. But none of us is too important, for example, to change diapers in the nursery. Now, that will not be the one that I will pick if I get choices, right? But I've done it. I'm a professional at it. <laughs> had four children, changed a lot of diapers. I know how to do that, right? Is it my preferred job? No. But I'm not too good to do it. I'm not too important for it. Whatever the most menial task is, if we love like Jesus, we are willing to do the lowest servant job. It means that we offer Jesus cleansing to all who need it and we help them find it and we confess our sins one to another before the Lord together. Wouldn't it be great if at church you didn't have to be a hypocrite? You didn't have to pretend that you had your stuff together, but you could be really real about what's really going on in your life. And you could tell your brothers and sisters, hey, this week is a struggle. I didn't get along with my husband this week. I yelled at my kids this week. I overspent our budget this week. You know, whatever the issue is. 
and you can go together before the Lord and, and help each other to grow up. And we didn't have to do this. Oh, how, how's it going this week? Oh, fine, fine. Just walking with Jesus, brother. How about you? <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Now, if that's true, say that, right? But if it's not, be honest with each other. Right? Be honest with each other. Wash each other's feet. It means that we follow Jesus' example and we offer Jesus' salvation to even the people who are least likely to receive it. You know when we get really excited when people come to faith in Jesus out of some wild and woolly background? Right? Because we go, isn't it amazing what Jesus did? Somehow we never consider that to be the case in our own reflection, right? We don't ever look at ourselves and go, isn't it amazing what Jesus did, right? But, but it is. It's amazing what Jesus did. We offer salvation to those least likely to receive it. And we rejoice when they do. And we mourn when they don't. And it means, last of all, that love is the distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers. Did you catch that? Nowhere in the Bible does it say they will know that we are Christians by our religiosity. They will know we are Christians by our vocabulary. They will know we are Christians by our voting pattern. They will know we are Christians by our uh, by where we live in the town. They will know, you know, it says, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the idea is this, that we love one another like Jesus loves us. And if we do that, that it becomes so unexplainable by any other means other than that we belong to Jesus. One of my favorite passages in Acts is where it says of the disciples, they took note of the fact that they had been with Jesus. Right? That's the idea. That our love for each other is such that the only reasonable explanation is that we have been. That the love that Jesus shows to us overflows out of us to each other in a way that is attractive and explainable only as a product of our relationship with him. Now, I want to pray for us and then we want to celebrate communion together because this is one of the other things Jesus did on this night was establish this particular right to remind his disciples of his love for them. And we want to be reminded of Jesus' love for us. So let's, let's, uh, let me pray and then we'll take communion. God, our Heavenly Father, thank You that You are a God of great grace, of limitless love, demonstrated amply for us in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to live out His manner of life, 
with one another and before a watching world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us instruction on how to take communion. And what he says is, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion, if you want to think about it, is about three things. It's about cleansing. The fact that Jesus' death cleanses us from sin. It's about community. The fact that because we have been cleansed of sin, we enter into a new community of brothers and sisters as part of the family of God and that Jesus has brought us into His own family and we share a meal because we share in His life and in His family together. And it's about the fact that He's coming. He's coming again to claim us and to bring us into the reality of what our cleansing and what our community really is supposed to look like. And all those things are wrapped up in this. But we take bread because it speaks of the body of Jesus. The fact that He is a real human being who lived a real human life, who died as a real substitute for real people like you and me. And we celebrate, weird, no, we do. We celebrate the breaking of Jesus' body. Because it is by His stripes, the Scripture says, that we are healed. It is by the breaking of His body that we have the resurrection of ours. And so we celebrate, even as we mourn what happened to Jesus, we celebrate what Jesus did in that for us. Amen? Let's take the bread and celebrate. God, our Father, we thank You that You kept Your promise. That You are as good as Your Word always. You kept Your promise for us in Jesus Christ. That though He was crushed, He was healed. And through His crushing and healing, through His death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins and life. Right along with it. And Father, we praise You for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul continues, he says, In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And again, cleansing, community, and coming. That through, his, through the breaking of His body, through the shedding of His blood, we have cleansing. And we also enter into the community of the family of God through faith. And we are looking forward to coming of the Savior. We serve a risen Savior who is alive today and who is coming back for us. And so we want to celebrate with the cup the fact that Jesus has bought us cleansing, brought us into community, and is coming back to Christ. God, our Heavenly Father,
Again, we thank You and we give You praise. And we worship You by the Holy Spirit through Your Son uh, for what You have done for us in Christ. We celebrate, Father, um, the cleansing He provided and the community He brought us into and the coming of the Messiah, which hasn't happened yet, but as surely as You promised and delivered in Christ's first coming, You will surely, having promised, deliver in the second. And Father, until that day, we give You praise and worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.